Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivivani. I'm really looking forward to hearing from our guest today, David Blake, because he's been a driving force in shaking up traditional models of education, and as he puts it, jailbreaking the college degree. Through the company he co-founded, Degreed, and other work, he's brought many innovations to education and lifelong learning with the aim of enabling everyone to fulfill their personal missions. He's also co-author of the book, The Expertise Economy, How the Smartest Companies Use Learning to Engage, Compete, and Succeed. Before we get started, I'd like to give a shout out to Deborah Quazo, who we've had on the podcast from GSV Ventures, as well as uh, some mutual friends we have with David, including Shadi Barkan, who joined David on his latest company, Book Club. So David, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, good to be with you. Our audience likes to hear first in guest's own words, what got you interested in a career in education and then obviously becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, framed that way, it's funny because I never aspired really to either. The education bug bit by surprise, and I still to this day tell people I'm an education reformer by choice, but an entrepreneur out of necessity. But to tell you the story about how the education bug bit, it was when I sat for the ACT when I was 17. And I was a very dedicated, high-achieving student. I was at the top of my class, sat for the ACT. I had studied, studied hard. And all the same, I just wasn't prepared for that experience. When I sat down, it was a Saturday morning, three and a half hours in American Fork High School's gymnasium. And I just looked to my left and to my right. And it just floored me that this is, I mean, we just can't be serious. This isn't how you, we actually sort everyone in and out of their future. And it just blew me away. And so that was kind of this catalyst. And I was shook enough from that experience. I went to my high school guidance counselor and asked, where did the test come from and why do we do it this way? And, you know, they knew its importance in the college admissions process, but they actually didn't know the history of the test. And so then I went to the library. This is all pre-Google, which I'm an elder millennial, just uh, old enough to go to the library instead of to Google when I was in high school. And I was looking for books on high stakes testing to kind of answer these questions. And my local rural library didn't have anything on it, but it did have some books on the history of education. And I started studying those. And then I had the epiphany that would change the course of my life which was this, those books were the first thing I had ever studied that a teacher hadn't assigned to me, which led me to see I had managed to become a truly exceptional student and at the same time, a terrible learner. And once I kind of saw that, felt that, realized that, I began to see the education, it is a system. I'm a product of a system. That system, as I had gone through it, was optimized for test taking, for memorization, for soaking up and spitting out information, but not for learning. I really was a terrible learner. I had learned very little relative to what the opportunity could have been. Learning was never the point. Getting grades was the point. I committed to myself that I was going to be a great lifelong learner, even if it came at the expense of being a great student from there forward. And that's, that's how it got me into education. That's a great origin story and very relatable, actually, where when you're a high achieving student, as many of our listeners are, because they're, they're clearly in health professional programs or they're, they've already graduated, so they've maintained a pretty solid GPAs. 
there comes a time when you realize that life is not a test and the skills you need not only to succeed in the workplace, but just to be happy, a happy, balanced human are not often the skills that our colleges and high schools are, are teaching. So, you know, you make an important distinction between being a student and being a learner. Do you want to describe that a bit further? Yeah, I mean, as a student, you're participating in some system and typically the system, I mean, it has very clear markers of, of kind of measurement and progress. It tends to be grades and GPA and test scores. And through most of the system, there's kind of the next big gate, which is, will I get into university? Will I get into grad school? I mean, that's what it means to be a good student, you know, versus a learner, which is the ability to, uh, I would really define it as change yourself. You know, as we actually learn, which is the accumulation of knowledge and contextualization of it, and then the application of it to actually develop and change ourselves, we actually change. And I think, you know, most often for the better, if you're really being transformed, that's when you're learning. If you're jumping through hoops, that's the game of being a student. And now those Venn diagrams can have overlap. There's no reason why we can't be good students and good learners, but I think a lot of the system has lost its way, which is, you know, it forgets that the point is to see lives changed instead of just seeing people advance through to the next hoop or step in the journey. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely important. And that whole concept you have of jailbreaking the college degree or degrees in general is what led to you founding Degreed. So let's actually turn to that uh, because that's the company I think you're most well known for. You know, one quick kind of small world connection. I believe there's a great backstory you have about Mark Cuban becoming a key investor. Uh, <laughs> he was actually on the podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about his, oh, yeah? yeah, talking about cost plus drugs yeah. and his new company. Do you want telling mm -hmm. us both about how that came about, bringing Mark Cuban on board, and then also just go into Degreed and what you're most proud of it having achieved? Yeah, I tell you, I'm an entrepreneur by necessity, and there's so much about the life of an entrepreneur that I really don't aspire to. You know, and the early degree journey was very hard. I started the company in 2012. 2011 is what has been deemed the year of the MOOC. That's when Coursera, edX, and um, Udacity all launched with great fanfare. And so it was an exciting time in med tech, but everyone's attention was on this like democratization of content. And so when I showed up talking about credentials, that just wasn't in the zeitgeist yet. That wasn't something people were thinking about, were focused on. And so, you know, I could get venture capitalists kind of curious about what I was doing, but I couldn't get any of them to see potential in what I was doing. And so we ended up sustaining the business early on, on, on credit cards. I signed up for every credit card I could and would roll one credit card over to the next. I was paying early salaries on credit cards, accumulating in the process, tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And after being rejected by some of the best VCs in the world, I had to turn my sights to angel investors to sustain it. And I had never raised any kind of financing before, but I had never raised from VCs and I hadn't raised from angels either. I was young. I was relatively under-networked, having not graduated from kind of a top university or one of, you know, Silicon Valley's kind of feeder schools. 
and I slowly was networking my way through angels and I did start to get a couple of checks, but it was just enough to kind of keep the lights on and keep things going. And we were essentially just always running out of money. And after kind of, you know, four or five months of just surviving on a few small angel investments, we did run out of money and had to skip payroll. And it was just in this window leading up to that, that I was scrambling to try and network my way into yet another angel to keep this all alive. And in that window, I read a blog post by Mark Cuban, where he actually wrote two at the time, which were calling out how higher education was failing uh, the American student. And so it was a, a topic I knew he cared about, and I knew he was thinking about and so I got on a shady website on the internet and I purchased Mark Cuban's email address and I sent him a cold email and said, we're jailbreaking the college degree. I read your blog post. I know you care about this. Here's my vision for the future. He wrote back quite quickly. I mean, it's really been impressive how fast he is in his communication. And he said, I'm interested. Uh, I'm curious. Tell me more. And so I sent him a, a two paragraph email with our deck attached and he responded to that saying I'm in what do you need and Mark Cuban became kind of our first substantial investor in the company and kept us alive to fight another day and here we are I love that I mean I, I agree he's remarkably efficient at his email and Alex Oshmiansky who's the CEO of cost plus drugs had a similar story and then also when I was booking him on our podcast was really impressed with how quickly he he got back and how interested he is in healthcare and education and obviously in, in blockchain and DeFi nowadays. But mm -hmm. so for our audience that doesn't know, you know, Degreed is a major name in workforce development and was the basis of your book, The Expertise Economy. Obviously, a lot of our listeners are people who are going to be working for health systems, for large clinics like Walgreens, CVS, Walmart Health. Can you tell them a bit about Degreed and then also maybe, you know, any specific healthcare applications of Degreed as well. And in general, I found that many of these great education companies like Degreed tend to thrive in workforce development when it comes to like data science and software engineering and marketing and product and those kind of fields. But in terms of healthcare, it's a bit different, much more fragmented, much more bureaucratic, it seems. So can you, yeah, just give us a bit of a context on Degreed and then any healthcare applications? I found no better way of framing up degree than this question, which is I started asking people, tell me about your education. Tell me about your education. Tell me about your education. And in time came to ask literally hundreds of people that question. And inevitably everyone answers one way, which is relative to a college degree. Oh, I graduated from SMU or, oh, I'm an econ major, or I have an MBA. I went to Wharton or even those who didn't go will tend to answer relative to the college degree. Oh. I didn't go to college. And all of it is an absurdity. It's all, all of it is an absurdity. And if I were to ask you to try out the absurdity of it, which is, you know, if I were to ask you, hey, you know, Shiv, tell me about your health. And you were to say, yeah, Dave, you know, hey, I, I actually ran a marathon 17 years ago. That is absolutely an absurd way to answer that question. And we all know it. And it is so analogous to how we answer for our education, but we just have been conditioned to ignore the absurdity because we all know that marathons are great. It's, it's nothing you know, particularly about the marathon, but we all know that the fitness you were in 17 years ago has almost no bearing on your health 17 years later. 
And yet when you ask someone, tell me about your education and they tell you where they went to university, it's an absurdity. It is a flat out absurdity. And just like marathons, you know, are good, you can hold that universities are good and the college degree is good. I mean, I have my critiques, but that isn't even what this is about. The fact that that is how we answer for our education is a flat out absurdity. The fact that that is how we hire is a flat out absurdity. And so Degreed was born to fix that problem, which was to give people a way to answer for their education, knowledge, and skills now in real time that reflects all of their education, informal, formal, and professional. And that's what Degreed was born to do. And so we do that now, you know, as Degrees just celebrated its 10 year anniversary. We do that for companies large and small, but in particular, some of the world's largest organizations. We're in about half of the Fortune 200, millions of people globally, every industry. And you are right that when it comes to healthcare, you do tend to see a lot of specialized providers of both the education, but also of technology. But Degreed really was born to serve all use cases. So we have clients in every industry, every vertical, and then within those clients, we serve their entire organization. So frontline workers all the way up to the CEO, white collar, blue collar, gray collar, pink collar, everyone has to learn these days. All of us to be relevant and sharp in our, our fields have to be good lifelong learners. We do have some of the world's largest hospital systems as clients and you know, what it enables is for your listeners probably do have a very different mix as to what they're learning. They're probably reading from a lot of journals. They've probably got a lot of clinical research. They've probably are taking continuing education courses. The mix is different, but everyone's mix is different. Degreed was just born to be able to give you a place to curate that, to track it, to have your organization be able to see who is learning what, who has which skills, who is specializing in which domains that gives you transparency to be able to reach out to see what your other colleagues are learning. And when you have a question to be able to find those with the right expertise. And that is, I think, even especially poignant in healthcare. So for anyone who's interested, feel free to give me a ping. Yeah, no, it's super powerful and very compelling. I love the, the marathon analogy. And one thing I've learned even now, now getting in my 30s is that people I knew in college who were, you know, Marshall scholars, Rhodes scholars, all these amazing students, things, priorities change and personalities change and people are, are no longer interested in some of the same things that they were back then. So truly, you know, having the skills quotient or this map that I know you've been espousing of, you know, what people mm -hmm. are doing in their off hours or their growth mindset, those things are all captured pretty well in your book, The Expertise Economy, which I really enjoyed not only because the content in there, but many of the same people, you know, like Boris Saxberg and CZI <laughs> and then Bill Jeffries. He was actually the, the the person who brought osmosis into University of Vermont and then Geisinger and very forward thinking as far as combating content overload and, you know, reducing those 60 minute lectures with five minute bite-sized micro learning opportunities that, that we do. So can you tell our audience a bit about the book, The Expertise Economy and some of the big takeaways they should have, whether they're frontline healthcare workers, or they're going to be leading health systems? There's a couple of ways to maybe share, you know, why someone would go to the book, but it was really this call to action to the world of corporate learning and those responsible for it. And I think we're at this critical juncture, which is 
historically you did used to get your formal schooling and then land in a career and you could stay in the same job, the same career for 30 years. And that's just no longer the case. All of us, you know, the rate at which technology is scaling has outpaced the rate at which humanity can learn. It's creating an ever bigger skills gap. The pressure to be a lifelong learner is now sort of omnipresent. And in the future, we're at this intersection point, which is in the past, a majority of your formal education was administered to you by a school, a university, and a teacher or a professor. But as we move into this future of lifelong learning, we're just crossing over to where a majority of the learning, formal learning in your lifetime will be administered to you by your company and by HR or corporate L&D. And that's a radical shift. And so we're ushering into this era where a majority of our learning is going to be administered not by a professor, not by a teacher, but by HR or L&D, by your manager, by a corporate administrator. And so it was overdue to have this conversation with what does that future look like? And historically, the world of corporate learning was almost exclusively about compliance. And now in healthcare, that tends to include a lot of continuing education. So there is very meaningful things that, that people are able to learn and pick up in their continuing education credits. But historically, almost the entirety of all corporate training was around compliance, checking the box to meet kind of these regulatory thresholds. It was not about helping your people become their best selves. It was not about helping people to not just clear the minimum threshold, but to live up to their highest aptitudes. And that is really the conversation around expertise economy, where we had to shift how organizations, how they saw learning, the role of learning, the role of the learner, the goal and the objective that learning should be inside the organization, and then start to give them a, okay, so how do you do it? What does that mean? And I think one just very quick key takeaway is for us as learners, we talk about the learning loop in the book, which is there is a difference between the accumulation of knowledge and learning. And learning has to be, again, contextualized, applied, you need feedback, and then it loops back around on itself. And the final comment, I'll say you referenced the skills quotient, which is we do need a way, part of why degrees are so persistent is because it's the only universal language the world has to talk about education. I can tell you that I'm an MD, you can tell me that you're a JD, and you don't actually have to know anything about medicine, and I don't actually have to know anything about a law to know kind of what that represents, the level of accomplishment, and it's, it's global, it's universal. If I tell you that I'm a, a level seven or that I'm GGNA certified, you might not have any context to know what that begins to mean. And so the skills quotient is to give organizations a framework by which to start thinking about how do we give common and universal language and measurement to people's skills. And the book is already now a few years old, and we're seeing a lot of progress on this front, which is the organization's capacity to measure the skills of their people and to be able to speak the language of what skills are we going to need in the future and to essentially map those against each other. Because that's the map by which organizations should be plotting out their learning, which is what are the skills we need? What are the skills we have? How do we close that gap? Absolutely. And hopefully even feeding that information back to the colleges and high schools that are tasked with pumping out, you know, productive and civically engaged people, which is not really happening at the rate we needed it to. 
we could obviously talk a lot more about this. One, one other question on workforce, and then I'd love to hear more about book club, is this past few months has been a really interesting time to be a leader of a company at any size, whether it's a startup or a large Fortune 200 company. Great resignation, great regret. Do you have any commentary on the trends happening right now? I mean, March was the biggest month for U.S. workers quitting their jobs. Do you think this trend is here to stay? Do you think we're going four-day work week? It's a big question, but just would love to get your thoughts on these trends. I think we've gotten to where labor and capital, you know, labor has been getting kind of the short end of the bargain. So I think the fact that kind of leverage is shifting back to the worker, I think it's healthy overall. You know, Degree was a hybrid remote organization from before it was cool. And so, you know, have been a early practitioner and advocate of that, but book club was born after COVID and entirely remote. And I will say it has brought into plain view for me. I mean, all of the challenges of what it is to organize a group of people who've never met each other in person. And it's silly how much our brains unlock by just being in the same room as someone versus on these screens. I mean, our evolution, it's just silly that the Jetson future doesn't make good on everything. I can see you, I can hear you, and yet our brains just unlock in a special way when we're in the same room. In terms of the great resignation, I do think organizations didn't used to have to think about employee development beyond their tenure inside their company. And I think part of what this has put pressure on, there's a bit of this paradox, which is if you're actually willing to invest in your employees to their long-term benefit beyond the tenure that you expect them to have with your organization, that's actually what gets them to stay longer. And so it's just this paradox, which is like, hey, why should I be giving them this skill? It might help them leave. It might help make them more marketable. It's going to make them get recruited away. But the employees, we're all feeling it. We're all feeling the pressure of job displacement, of skilling, of the skills gap, of the need to do all these things. And so where employees want to be is actually organizations that are willing to truly invest in them, not invest in the needs of the organization strictly, but to invest in the employee to their betterment, to their long-term advantage. And so it's a paradox. If you're willing to skill someone up in a way that actually makes it easier for them to leave, they're actually more likely to stay. Yeah, it's that famous Ranson quote, which is train people well enough so they can leave, treat them well enough so they don't want to. Certainly, mm -hmm. that's been our mm -hmm. experience building a remote or distributed organization on osmosis. And one of the things that makes me proudest is when people who have left because it just made sense at their stage of career and development have gone on to do amazing things at companies like Spotify or Google or even start their own companies, which has been, been really mm -hmm. gratifying. I know we're coming up on time, so I have two other questions for you. The first is, do you want to give our audience a bit of insight into book club? I know many of them are avid readers, and I just think what you're doing is such a cool concept. And again, any healthcare event, I don't know if you have any authors like Anatul Gawande or someone who's well-known in healthcare, but book club in general and or any healthcare applications. Sure. The data at Degree surprised me. So 10 years later, millions of people learning on the platform. When I pulled down the data, people are still learning more from books than any other source. And it's by a lot, 6x more. And that's all online courses. That's all university courses. That's all um, podcast and audio. That's all short form, all the certificate programs. People are still learning by, it's like 6.5x more from books than any other source. And 
so whether you're plus or minus on that, you know, in aggregate, it's degreed is now millions of people, it's representative. And so I really wanted to start to focus up if that's the most powerful lever in terms of our lifelong learning, how do we get more from that? How do we go deeper? How do we, I think the power of great literature is the ability to challenge our worldview and to have meaningful conversations inspired by some of the world's best thinking. And that's just a great recipe to be playing with. And we haven't yet made it into any healthcare domain specific book clubs, but we launched direct to consumer last year. You can think of it as kind of a masterclass meets Goodreads. We film these cinematic videos with the authors, taking people deeper into their books and kind of questions behind the scenes, some prompts, some thinking, some conversation. And then you're able to do that alongside of a community of people on the platform. We launched to consumers last year. So anyone can go sign up for book club. And then we did launch this year with organizations. And so we are helping organizations to map to what is the conversation you need to have? What is a challenge? What is the, the struggle inside the organization? What are your strategic objectives? And no matter who you are, where in the world, whatever industry, whatever your answer is to any of those prompts, there's a book that maps to it. And these books are just great catalysts of the world's best thinking to have a conversation as an organization in a sustained and meaningful way that resulted shared storytelling and shared narrative and shared principles and shared language for your organization. And so while we haven't been doing a medical or healthcare specific books, it is relevant to, you know, any of your listeners who are part of a healthcare organization, you know, would still be immediately benefited by the way in which we're able to square off to some of these conversations and take your organization through it in, in just such a meaningful way. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. Um, you know, we at Osmosis, I mentioned the Shadi leverage several books in the exact way you're describing books like Creativity Inc. As we grew our content production team or The Hard Thing About Hard Things or Play Bigger. So I'm really, really excited about where you guys are taking this and how data driven you are with the you know 6.5x stat as you mentioned. Since we're coming up on time, I'm going to combine the last two questions into one, mm -hmm. which is we love to hear from our guests any advice they'd like to provide to our audience about approaching their careers. And then the final thing is anything else that we haven't touched upon that you'd love to be able to get across to them. So two, two and one here. Here's what it sparked, um, which isn't quite career, but I find this fascinating, which is curiosity is now negatively correlated with good learning cultures inside organizations. And at the surface, that just seems, you know, to be just mind boggling. So I'll say it again. Curiosity is negatively correlated with great learning cultures. And the reason for that is we used to exist in a world where information was scarce. And so curiosity was this attribute that you sort of was this prerequisite of what was required for you to persist long enough to find inaccessible information. But the world has changed. We're now in a world where information is abundant and easily accessible and fully democratized. And, you know, today curiosity just ends up, you know, on a rabbit hole on Reddit or, you know, 86 minutes later on TikTok. Now what correlates with great learning cultures is intentionality. And so you actually have to be good at filtering out the noise of having a clear intention, a clear objective, a clear goal being able to curate your way through all the noise, through great resources that are aligned to a clear objective. So, you know, I'll leave you with that. It's kind of a backwards paradoxical thought, but a new research out of Harvard Business Review to, to back it up. 
that's fascinating. I got to check that out. And it lines well with your book, which one of the seven core focus areas was to combat content overload. And so hopefully mm -hmm. our learners will spend less time on TikTok and Reddit and going down the rabbit hole and more time <laughs> just being deliberate with their learning and growth. So David, it's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Really impressed with everything you've done across your career to improve workforce development, education. And now I know you're working with your children to provide them a very unique educational experience. So thanks for joining us. I'm excited to hopefully have you on in another day. I would be glad to. A lot of fun. Thanks, Shiv. And with that, I'm Shiv Uglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.